We're going through a series, Authentic Living Today. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7 is our text. God's guidance for marriage. Now, that might not be what you came here expecting to hear. <laughs> but I got to give you a heads up. Next week, you, if you didn't hear last week's message, you might want to get online and listen because you might need it for next week. We're just simply going right through the text, and this is where we land. I'd like to give you a quote up front. This is from Josh McDowell. We do not develop habits of genuine love automatically. We learn by watching effective role models, most specifically by observing how our parents express love for each other day in and day out. I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts. First, when more families in the church are whole, the church is more whole. Would you agree? Well, then the contrapositive to that would be when more families in the church are broken, the church is more broken. Can't have one without the other. Here's a book I'd recommend if you want to purchase online or however you buy books. Gender Roles in, and the Bible, written by Jack Cottrell. I'll give you a fair warning. If you do search for that book online, you might get a notice from some of the police that are online because it's not popular to talk about gender roles. That's considered old school. That's considered not okay anymore. In fact, if you want to talk about gender roles openly in the public forum, you will likely be policed by social media and a whole lot of other people who think that they have more morals than the rest of us because you're not supposed to even think there are gender roles. There's not even supposed to be gender differences. But here we are in a text that tells us something other than that. I want to give you another resource if you haven't discovered it already. It's been around for a while. James Dobson put this together. It's called Focus on the Family. You can get online. You can, there's a, a vast supply of resources. If you think that you want to reach out for help outside of a local church or your normal resources, Focus on the Family is a good resource. But I want to show you an even better resource than the ones I've already mentioned. It's the Bible. That's the best place to go if you want to learn about God's design for the family, the Bible. Oh, sure, these other resources highlight biblical truths and help us understand it. But the Bible is the place to go, and that's where we're going today. I want to give you some background, though. Did you know that one of the apostles we know for sure by the Bible was married? Some of you might not know that. So I want to give you a passage. It's in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, but here's Matthew's account. Matthew 8, 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law. She had a fever. Remember, Jesus healed her. So Peter had a mother-in-law. And if you don't know this already, I'll tell you now, nobody wants a mother-in-law without getting married. I'm just saying. Just saying. My mother-in-law is good to me, so there's no disrespect to her. She loves me, and she overlooks my flaws. But nobody wants a mother-in-law without being married. That's just the way it is. Peter was married, 
at the time he was serving as an apostle. And Peter's the one who wrote our text. He had insight because he was married, but he had inspiration because God gave him these words. So he's coming as an expert by God's standards. Now, one of my children, of course it's a boy, used to love one of my messages, and the only reason why I loved it is because of the title. We would actually do this on purpose to cause a little bit of a stir and get people to show up. Maybe, maybe we could do that here sometime, but if you can imagine seeing this at your local grocery store on the bulletin board, God is not a woman by Pastor Jeff Adams. Come at this time and hear this. As I would preach this message, and there would be critics in the audience, I would say, after I would announce the name of the message, yes, it's God is not a woman. But you must know, God is not a man either. God created men and women. He can't be part of his own creation. doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. God is not a man and God is not a woman. He's God. But let me give you a little bit of a reminder of the creation account. I'm sure you've seen this in Sunday school. Maybe you've gone through it in your own Bible. But you can see the different things God created in the six days of creation, not including the day of rest. In these days, each time God created something, if you'll remember, after He created, He saw that it was good. Each day, ah, this is good. This is good. Then the next day, he creates something else. Ah, this is good. This is good. And he gets all the way after he creates animals, and he creates man. And when he creates man, he goes, he needs help. No suitable helper could be found. And he created woman to complete the man. Because without her, he's incomplete. He needs her help. That's why woman was created. <clears throat> As we talk about gender roles, it would be foolish not to note that in God's grand scheme, you know God didn't do it like this. He create, 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 and at the end he goes, whoops, he didn't make a mistake. He designed it this way. He designed this plan for the family so that man would be incomplete without woman. That's his design. And so even though I titled a message, God is not a woman, you would have to have a caveat there to know when you're talking about God is not a man either, and you talk about the roles of men and women, that when it comes down to it, God's divine plan is that man is helpless without woman. So now we enter our text, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Boom! Oh yeah, men love that, don't we? we we've got other passages, I'll give you some more in a minute, but here we go. Likewise, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. This seems harsh in today's climate where we're not even supposed to notice there's a difference between male and female. And there's, then we have this verse staring at us. From Peter, who has insight and inspiration, God tells us this. Well, 
That's uncomfortable, but let's read the whole thing here. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won with, without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see you, your respectful and pure conduct. That's the way it works. I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but there's a real thing called male pride. You see it play out in everyday life. And it's one of those things that men don't always do well, and that's take advice from their wives. But one of the things that works really well is when a Christian woman lives out her faith in front of her husband, that's convicting. Now, I've done a ton of premarital counseling, and I, and I really struggle with this whole thing in the, the prison environment now because, because I've done a little bit in there, and then the, the offenders talk, and things work out in their relationship, and I've got over 800 that I could be helping. And so then they, they get this figured out, hey, the chaplain can counsel us and help us, and I can't do that many. I can't. I want to, but there's just too many. But I got to tell you, when we're discussing between a man and a woman who are about to get married, when we're discussing how you get along and how you communicate, that sort of thing, one of the things that we always cover is when there is an argument going on between the two, what that looks like, what that feels like, that sort of stuff. And when there's a heated argument and the woman is angry and the man is angry, there's, it, it just gets rough. When the woman is angry, I don't know if anybody's told you this yet or not, but most of the time men pay careful attention. If you haven't figured this out, you need to know. Most of the time, if you're a betting person, and I'm not, but if you were, you could bet that if a woman is angry, it's because she's hurt. Almost without fail, that's why is she angry? And if it happens to be you who hurt her, well, then it's even that. It's, it's worse. So if the woman is angry because she's hurt, one of the things she tends to do is she gets, she's defensive and she's angry, and all her prettiness goes away at the moment because she's very upset. And for the man, he's looking at her and he doesn't see somebody that's hurt. He sees what she knows she's acting like, which is a monster, I've heard that across all kinds of cultural, um, even cultural backgrounds. Even trans translators will say when a woman's talking about how she feels when she's angry, she's saying things she knows she needs to stop, but she doesn't stop. And she says, this has happened many times across cultural backgrounds and, and language barriers. They say, I feel like I'm a monster. It's, it's weird. It's almost a universal thing. But the man doesn't see a monster he sees somebody who's just being mean, and it's easy to attack back because she's not as pretty as she normally is when she's angry. She's not, that, that just kind of goes away. And if he's not seeing her as someone that's hurt, then it's easy to lash back and hurt more. <clears throat> and when I'm talking to, oh, by the way, if you don't know this, when the man is angry, he doesn't look like just... It's not, monster is not the best word. He, he does, but that's not it. When he is lashing out at her, he looks like a serial killer. I'm telling you, that look in his eyes, you don't know what he's going to do. It's very scary. You're much scarier as a man when you're angry than 
as a woman when you're angry. I'm just saying. In that situation, when you're talking back and forth, um, oftentimes, when I'm talking to these couples about how these conversations play out, we, we peel it back, and they talk about specifics. They get into the specific arguments and how that's playing out. And I love to peel it back and, and ask the question, when it comes down to it, instead of, if, if the woman would, instead of attacking, if she would simply say to him, that hurts. And if I'm talking to a Christian man, I say, okay, what would you do differently if she said simply that? And most of the time, the man backs up and like, that, that would stop me in my tracks. Because see, he's not thinking about her hurting. He's thinking about she's acting like a monster. He's attacking back. But if she says simply, that hurts, it's not what he wants. Just wanted to give you that, a little bit of free premarital counseling stuff. You don't need it, I'm sure, but you might be able to share it with those who do if they ever need that. But that's what this verse is talking about. It's talking to women. You can win your husband over with your actions more than your words. Now, let's move to the next part, and we'll, we'll have to dissect this as we do it. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. We'll read the whole thing. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, I want you to pay attention to these words, adorning. There's, they're there twice, and you'll see I've got them circled behind me. It says it differently in different translations, but I want to give you the Greek word. You can see it pop up behind me. And the way you... The way that is transliterated is right next to it, cosmos. Does that sound like a word we're familiar with? Yeah, it's translated world a lot of times. In the New Testament, it's just translated world. But its literal meaning is orderly arrangement. Isn't it interesting that the word that's used in Scripture for world is orderly arrangement? Does that not lend itself to mean there's a creator? But the idea is, don't let your orderly arrangement, how you put yourself together, be all focused on just the external. Now, for a moment, don't, don't misunderstand what's being said here. This is not a scripture that's saying to all women everywhere who are married, just get ugly. That's not what it's saying. <laughs> it's saying your beauty it shouldn't be all about that. It says that it should come from the inside. Let your adorning, how you put yourself together, let the focus of that be from the inside. And, he, and a specific description here is a gentle and quiet spirit. That's not exactly trendy either. But that is the way God describes it here. He sees that as a precious thing. And I want to get into that. I'm going to give you a chart in a little bit. 
And I'll have the charts available at the door when you leave as well. Just to make it more palatable, let's read from Eugene Peterson's, it's a, it's a translation, but it's more of a paraphrase, from the translation called The Message. I'll read it to you. The same goes for you wives. Be good wives to your husbands, responsive to their needs. There are husbands who, indifferent as they are to any words about God, will be captivated by your life of holy beauty. What matters is not your outer appearance, the styling of your hair, the jewelry you wear, the cut of your clothes, but your inner disposition. That's a, that's a cool wording. How you carry yourself as a Christian woman matters more than how you carry yourself physically. It continues in our text in the ESV with verses 5 and 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Hmm. Now, I want to give you another passage here. This is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Boom! There's another one. Men really love that one. <laughs> I'll give you the context of this in a minute. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So as you submit to Christ, submit to your husbands. That's, that's strong language. For, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. That's, uh, that's hard to swallow. It was hard to swallow for a particular Christian comedian. I wish I could remember. I keep looking it up, and Google does not have all of the answers, in case you haven't figured this out. But Stephanie and I were privileged to hear a testimony of a, at the time, very popular Christian comedian female. She gave her testimony, and her testimony was that when she was in Louisville, Kentucky, at a radio station, she was so far from God, her vocabulary was so displeasing to the Lord, because she didn't know the Lord, that one day, you know they have a green light and a red light when you're and I don't know if you've worked in a radio station, but they have a green light and a red light. And the green light means you can open the door, you can knock on the glass, you can interfere. But if there's a red light on, that means they're on the air. Do not interfere. Well, her green light was on right after she got done saying some things on the public radio. And Howard Stern was working there at the time. Do you know who he is? Howard Stern flung the door open and told her, you need to clean it up. She was so foul that Howard Stern was telling her she needed to clean up what she was saying. Wow, that's, that's a pretty foul person. And there was a couple that worked at that radio station. It was a Christian couple. They had a, their own thing that they recorded. It was pre-recorded for Sunday mornings, I believe. And they all knew each other at the radio station. And one day, this couple had the audacity to invite this foul woman to church. They attended that big church, Southeast Christian in Louisville. And when she agreed, when they went to church that Sunday morning, Bob Russell was the preacher at the time, 
it embarrassed the couple, the subject that began. The preacher happened to be preaching through this passage, and he read out loud, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Ouch! With this very foul, unchristian woman sitting there, and automatically, they said, they said they could feel how she was resisting from the beginning this message that's not okay with her. But as Bob Russell continued, and he went on with the other passages, she began, the other, the rest of the passage, he began to talk about that, and I, I want to show you what that looks like. She began to get convicted, so let's, let's move on to verse... 25, and we'll move further down in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And Bob Russell went on to peel this back and explain what it means. In other words, Christ loved his bride so much, the church, that not only was he willing to give his life for her, he did it. And he did it so that she could look good to everyone without any flaws. He wants his church to look good. He wants his bride to look beautiful. Christ, the symbol of the husband, loved his bride so much that he died so that she would not look bad in any way. And this foul woman nudged her female friend, and she, she said, show me a man like that and I'll marry him. <laughs> and Bob Russell went on to talk about the passage and explain that that man was very real, and he is very real. It's Jesus Christ. And he's setting the example of what a husband is supposed to be in the home. That this description of the church, it, it falls apart if there is no good representation of it. And Jesus set the example. This idea that the church is a family, you know, representative of a, of a husband loving his bride so much that he would die for her. It makes it a little bit more palatable when you know that the husband would die for you before he would allow anyone to ever see you having a flaw. If you are married to a man like that, it's not hard to submit. But let's not stop there. I want to I back up just a little bit because in the context of this whole thing, if you go before we started reading about wives submit, that part, go just before that in verse 33, Ephesians 5.33. This is to all of us. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm reading down below. I'm going to back up in a minute. This is the last verse in that text. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Just wanted to throw that in there. Now let's back up to verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is to all of us. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, 
but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I don't know if you just caught that, but we are all supposed to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this idea of submitting, wives submitting to your husbands, we're also told each one of us is supposed to submit to each other. So it's not a one-way street. But i got to tell you something funny about this. You read this, and this idea of singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, this idea of singing, this expression of joy, it's something that naturally comes out of many people. When you're happy, you sing. Some of us, we whistle. There was a time in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where I was cleaning my garage. Seems like it's a never-ending thing. But I was organizing and trying to clean. Garage door was wide open. Across the street were three homosexual males that lived there, and they were playing basketball. And as they're playing basketball, they're just doing their own thing, and I'm just cleaning the garage. And a song entered my head because I felt like I was reaching a finishing point and having it somewhat organized. And I began to sing a song that I didn't even know that I had the words in my head. It's not a Christian song. And the words, the only words I could remember, which sometimes I don't do that either. I, re I remember the wrong words, but these are the words. Am I the same girl? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. And I'm dancing around moving boxes. Am I the same girl? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. And at one point I realized the basketball stopped dribbling. And all three of those homosexual males were looking at me. And I'm thinking, what did I just sing? I closed the garage door and went inside. I was happy and in my own world until that happened. But we're supposed to submit to one another. It's not a one-way street. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. I'll remind you says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Christians, if we live like that, we wouldn't have a problem with any of these things that the Lord tells us to do in our roles as men and women. You're, you're, you're looking at other people as better than you. So why would you act like you're better than them? And I want to get to discussing that whole idea of gender roles and why, why, I talked about God is not a woman, God is not a man. Yeah, but why does he want us to think of him as a father? That's important. He has a reason. But let's look at the rest of our text in 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. There are plenty of women who don't like to be told, they don't like to go to this passage or anybody to suggest that they have anything that's weaker about them than a man. But that's one of the things where, in my opinion, the world has crept in and gotten us a little confused. Uh, I don't know if you remember, the, it happened uh, not that long ago, but two women about the same time were um, allowed into the United States Army for the first time at uh, West Point. You all remember that? Did you know that both of them were discharged? 
both of them ended up with fractured hips because they were trying to make them carry these 100-pound packs on their back and jump out of the back of trucks. And the Army learned very quickly, women's bodies are made differently than men's. Can't do that. Don't do that. Things changed because of those injuries. They began doing things, and now women have to do different... Their, their physical training is different than the men's. Did you know this? It's not the same. Their bodies are made differently. It was in 1991 where I was coaching weightlifting at a small rural school in Missouri when some on the football team thought it would be funny to add weight to the plates to the bench press without telling me. And so I ended up doing an amount that I didn't think I could do because I didn't think it was that much that was on there. And it was shocking to me, and, I, and shortly thereafter, I bought the 1992 Guinness Book of World Records. It's the only time I've ever bought it. And the reason why I bought it, they had Scholastic going through the school, and, and it just happened to be there, and I happened to flip through there, and I happened to notice, I flipped and checked to check out. It's like, wow, I, I'm stronger than I thought I was. So I looked it up, strongest man in the world, bench press, like, I, was, I was like half of that. That's usually a sign that batteries are wearing. But it could be just that I'm scratchy with a microphone. Hopefully you can hear me in the parking lot. But I looked up and I was about half of what the strongest man in the world's bench press was. Okay, I'm not, not even half of that man. But then I looked up the strongest woman in the world and I was 50 pounds greater than her bench press. <laughs> And, and it actually showed her picture. And she looked more like a man than me. I'm just saying, she looked very, very strong. But this passage is talking about the weaker vessel. I don't think it's talking about physical stuff. I think God's trying to tell the men to pay attention. Because I think God knows that we're far more capable as men of hurting, of crushing the spirit of our wives than they are of us. Maybe it's because we're too flippant. I don't know. But what I do know is what we just read is that husbands, we get a threat. The wives don't get a threat. God doesn't say, okay, women, if you don't do what I'm telling you, this is what's going to happen. But he does that with us, with the men. He says, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Treat your wives. Let me, let me explain this so that it's a little bit more a little bit more easy, easy to, to handle. Um, I say easy, it's a little more palatable. If you can imagine this heirloom that's been passed down in your family, and some of you have these things. Some things you've got them in a trunk somewhere. Don't put it in the attic anymore because you don't want it to fall apart. It's been passed down for, from generations. And, but let's imagine this is a vase. This is a very beautiful vase and let's just say you put it on whatever, someplace up high, out of reach, so that nothing happens to it. This vase has been handed down. It's, it's considered, in your mind, precious. It's never been cracked. It's never been chipped. It's still beautiful. But can you imagine if somebody comes over and just grabs it and starts talking about it and waving around? Oh, don't do that. Why? Because it's precious. 
This is the way God wants the men to see their wives. She is precious. And she's easily broken. Men, we need to get an understanding here. We need to start teaching the little boys when they're small. We don't make fun of the women who, who care about their physical appearance. They, they want to take, they take a lot of time sometimes. Not us. We just hop in the shower and hop out, and maybe we'll grab a comb if we need to. But other than that, there's, we don't do a whole lot in there. But we make fun of women for being women. And sometimes we make fun of them when they're gentle and quiet, and God wants them to be. And the more we make fun, the more we poke and jab and hurt, the more we scar. We rough them up. And we, then we wonder why, why they're, they come across roughed up. Stop it. God's design is we are supposed to treat people properly, and he has a design for this. We are supposed to care for the woman we marry. Do you know the way it works. When you marry somebody, when a man marries a woman, he's supposed to go and ask permission from the father, her father. Why is that? Because the father has to weigh in the balance of things as he's going to take care of this one that I have raised to be a princess. Is he worthy to be considered a prince? Better take care of my daughter. And when he hands her off in the wedding ceremony, that's, the, that's what that represents. He's handing her off to another man who's going to take care of her from here on. That's what's supposed to be happening. But when we muddy the waters of, of male versus female, the gender roles in the world, then this stops happening. Some of you have even experienced, as you've tried to be a good person and set a good example. You tried to open the door for the one you love and you almost get slapped for doing it because there's not supposed to be a difference. But God has a design and we need to get back to following that if we want the church to be able to have an impact on this world that seems to be so opposed to the church in this dark world that needs the light of God shining in it, church, we've got to get back to doing our job. And that if the church's families are all broken, we're not representing very well. Now, I brought up this idea of why, why does God want us to view him as a father if he's not male or female? Because he created those genders. I have an opinion, it's based on scripture, and I don't have time. This is basically like a two-hour lesson, so I'm not going to go through that, but I want to throw it up on a chart for you. Here's the chart. Have I shown you this before? I can't remember. Okay, so this will be at the door when you leave, and you can take it and look at it, call me, email me, whatever, if you have questions. But I want you to notice on this chart that, let me explain what it is. This is the, the idea of perfect parenting is in the middle. See that bullseye right in the middle? I've got the uh, kind of a, a bullseye right, right there where perfect parenting is. We would all admit there's no such thing. We don't parent, none of us perfectly parent. But we want to aim for the bullseye. Here's my explanation of what I think is going on overall and why God wants us to view him as a father. And by the way, he describes himself 
in maternal ways in Scripture. In fact, at one particular place, he describes himself as loving us like a mother loves her baby while she's nursing the baby. That's a pretty maternal description. So in the chart you see behind me, we have on this side, you see that's the maternal side of God. And on this side, you've got the paternal side of God, mother versus father sides. God mothers and he fathers. He wants us to see him as a father. Now, typically when I'm teaching a lesson using this chart, I ask the question, where would the cross be? It would be on the maternal side. If you were to have to put it on one or the other, it'd be on the side where there's grace, where there's mercy. That's where the cross would be. So when it comes down to it, the most important piece of Christianity, the cross, would be on the mothering side of God, the grace side. But let's talk about, to describe it to you, there is a difference between a male and female when it comes to parenting, a mother and a father. Imagine this. The mother, let's say the father has done all of the cooking this evening, which is great if the father does. He's grilled, he's done all this other stuff, and he's done a bunch of cleaning, and this particular night is not his turn to do the dishes, his wife's turn. And so she's doing the dishes, maybe he's helping put some things away still, but she looks outside, and she sees the daughter, it could be the son, the daughter is outside, and she just got her training wheels off the bike, mind you, but she's actually out there doing something you'd imagine a boy doing, She's building a ramp on the sidewalk, and the mother's thinking, oh no, look at our daughter, she's going to get hurt. And the father's like, I got this, I got this. So he goes outside, and she doesn't worry about it, the father's got it, so she's doing dishes, and then she happens to look outside at the happy picture of, what? The father is on the girl's bike, he's built the ramp higher, and he's going to show her how it's done. <laughs> this, this is the way it plays out sometimes, you know. So in this description, you can see I've got on the maternal side, if you go to the extreme, and what I mean is remove the father from the picture altogether and the mother is not doing much fatherly stuff. If you want a good example of this, you can go to Gary, Indiana, a suburb of Chicago. Gary, Indiana is regularly an example of what it looks like if you take a society and remove the father, because that's what it is. It continues to be one of the highest crime-rated cities in the United States. The father's not there. And if you go the other way, if you go on the paternal side, you go all the way to the extreme, there's no mother figure, there's no mother, and the father is not very good at being gracious, not very good at being very loving, and so there's not much mothering instinct in him. If you go too far, you end up with abuse. And nobody wants that. So we aim for perfect parenting. We get away from those two extremes, and we aim for perfect parenting. I wish I had time to explain more of this whole chart to you, but understand this. God knows we're not going to be perfect in our parenting. We're going to miss the bullseye. I believe, my personal opinion is, he wants us to lean more on the fathering side. In other words, err on the fathering side more than on the mothering side. Why is that? Just a little. In other words, if he's going to say, okay, one of you, when it comes down to you, you've got to make a decision and you can't 
come to terms with it. Somebody's got to make a decision and take the lead. He wants the father to do it. So that means necessarily you're going to err on the fathering side. Means you might be a little bit more strict when you could have been more gracious. Here, here's the way this plays out. If you raise kids in your home where the kids grow up more on the maternal side and they think, huh, doesn't matter. God will forgive me. Whatever. That's dangerous. But what if you raise kids on the, on the paternal side where they live in a different world that's wrong? In other words, they, they grow up thinking, every time I sin, I'm going to hell. That's wrong. That's, that's not doctrinally correct. Every time you sin doesn't mean you're going to hell. Sin separates, yes. But just because everybody sins. We all mess up. We make mistakes. I make mistakes every day. That doesn't mean you're stepping in and out of your salvation. But kids that grow up thinking that Maybe it was too strict in their home. They grow up thinking, if I mess up, I'm going to go to hell. Every error leads me to hell. Oh, oh. If they grow up like this, they're still trying to please the Father. Yes, they might miss out on some joy in life, and not realizing you're okay. You're trying to please the Father. That's what He wants. You beg Him for forgiveness when you make mistakes. That's what He wants. But He doesn't want you to live life without the joy of knowing that you are destined for heaven. But your soul is safer living like that than living on the other side where it doesn't matter what I do, God's going to forgive me. <laughs> you understand the difference? In my opinion, the reason why God wants us to see him as a father and the reason why he wants the father to take the lead in the home is because we represent the father and people's souls are safer being raised in a home that leans a little bit more to the paternal side and the maternal side. Does that make sense? You can take the charts home, play with it, and if you disagree and want to argue and talk, I'm, I'm good with that. But God is not a male. God is not a female. He just wants us to see him as a father because it's better for us. Now here's an image of a silhouette of a mother and a father and two children. When when we, when we have to face reality, we have to understand there are broken families. And things don't always go the way they're planned. We talk about uh, a marriage and being loyal and faithful, and this is bound to hurt people who've been divorced, who've, who've, uh, who've been widowed. This is disturbing. It just brings up all kinds of emotions. It, uh, it needs to be understood that this, this whole idea of talking about the family is still a good thing, even though it brings up other things and other people, other emotions. I met Kenny Kearns. I met two Kenny Kearns, which is interesting. Lived in different states. But my first Kenny Kearns I met is the one I want to talk about. Talk to you about. He, he was a World War II veteran. When I, he was a, he grew up in his wilder days, he had a pink Harley Davidson. He had it painted pink just so he could get in fights. Yeah. He was a, he was a rough guy. I could, you couldn't tell when, when I met him, he was, he was an older man and, and you couldn't tell he, he only had one good eye. He, he took a part of a, a grenade shrapnel to his face in World War II, but you really couldn't tell. He, he had these, uh, those glasses that changed colors with the, with the sun, and most of the time they were dark, and 
I just, I couldn't tell. But Kenny Kearns, when I met him, his, his wife was dying. I met her in the hospital. Those were the days when you could go visit people in the hospital, you know. And um, I did her funeral for the family. Kenny Kearns, shortly after that, began showing up at my office at 6.30 every morning. I would fix coffee. Every now and then, just one of those things, we both, you know, I would fix coffee. Even though I had coffee fixed, and one of us would say something like, you want, you want to have breakfast? Yeah, let's go do breakfast. But at one point, I finally said to him, why do you come by my office every morning so early? What are you doing? Because I was going to my office because I wanted to be there before anybody else was stopping by, and he would find me. He wouldn't stay long, unless we went out to eat together. And by the way, he did a weird thing. He put butter in his coffee. You ever heard of that? It, it takes the bitterness down. I tried it. He's like, whoa, it does. It takes the bitterness right out. So if you're going to have that nasty Starbucks coffee, uh, put a little butter in it, take that bitter, burnt, over-roasted flavor. Anyway, um, Kenny Kearns answered me with, he said, well, when I married my wife, I said that I would be faithful. He said, every morning... I drive out to the cemetery. I talk to her. I said, I know she can't hear me, but I talk to her. I'm trying to be faithful, even though she's not here. And I, I admired him all the more. Like, wow. And he stopped by my office after he'd go to the cemetery. And I happened to be there, and he stopped and talked. And some of us, uh, we've got stories where our marriage partner is not with us, and that makes, makes it hard to hear about this faithfulness thing. There are some that have been through divorces, and it's hard to hear this, this marriage faithfulness thing. It's hard, it's hard to listen to. That's okay. It needs to be talked about. We need to be lifting up marriages that last a long time. How many in here have been married? Are there any couples? I don't even know. I didn't ask in advance. Anybody in here been married over 30 years? Raise your hands. In fact, could you go ahead and stand up if you represent being married for over 30 years? Okay, I'm going to start throwing out some numbers, and you can sit down if I miss you. How about 35 years? Whoa. Okay, how about 40? Whoa. Okay, give, you give me numbers. How many? Almost 47. How many? 45. 45. How many? 40. 40. Let's applaud all of these that have stood up when I asked to stand up. Thank you very much. That should be honored in the churches and be talked about. Kids should know about it. We should tell others. And whether you're widowed or not, we, want, we ought to be telling these stories and telling them it can be done. And none of this happens by accident. We have to work on it. it it's not something... Strong marriages that endure the test of time only happen because two people work at it. That's the way it happens, right? It's not all like the honeymoon the whole time. You have to have your rough spots and you have to be able to get through them. But we see the silhouette up behind me. I got to tell you, children are drawn to strong role models. 
I was walking in downtown Olympia in two, 2002. I was just, and I walked pretty fast. I was walking pretty fast. I walked past a lesbian couple that had a, a little girl with them. A toddler, a little bit, maybe three or four. And as I'm, I pass them and I walk on, the next thing you know, as I'm walking, a little hand grabs my pinky. She'd run from her lesbian parent figures um, and grabbed my little pinky, and I thought, what in the world? So I squatted down to face-to-face with her, and the lesbian couple came up, and she said, when they got right to me, she said, are you a daddy? Total stranger. Yes, I am. And then one of the ladies said, she's so fascinated with daddies. They are. Kids are drawn. And they, they want role models. They want father figures and mother figures. And in the church, what a good place to show them. Some of us, we're in situations where we have to be the father figure or the mother figure, and we're the grandparents. <laughs> That's okay. You do that. Represent well. Here's what happens, and I want to paint a very clear picture in case anybody needs to hear this. When your children are looking at you as a mother and a father or a mother figure and a father figure, they're going to do one of two things. They're going to say, I want to grow up and be just like you or marry someone just like you. Or they're going to say, I'm going to grow up and never be anything like you and never marry anyone like you. They're going to go one way or the other. Your example shapes their lives. And I've talked to so many, especially women, who say, I will never marry anyone like my father. But then they do. In the church of all places... We need to have beautiful silhouettes that represent what a family is supposed to look like. And and kids should be coming into the church who might not have whole families, but they should be able to see in the church what it looks like. It makes a difference. I can tell you that there is a a lady that had an impact on my life, and her impact lasts to this day. Her name is Sylvia Hayhurst. Sylvia Hayhurst, when I was taken, I, had, I didn't go to church very much growing up. I, I think I told you that we, we went to church when there was a fair in town so we could get in free to the fair. That's why we went. But my mother did take me to vacation Bible school, and Sylvia Hayhurst taught me a couple of years in vacation Bible school. And I marveled at this godly woman. She was very old. She barely could get around. And I, I thought, I, I can remember wondering, why does she want to teach little boys like me? And I was a, I was a brat. <laughs> why does she want to be here teaching me? She's old. And later, I, I have this impression of Sylvia Hayhurst, her name stuck in my head. Later, my mother told me more about Sylvia Hayhurst than she had been told from her family Sylvia Hayhurst, I don't, know, I don't know what happened to her husband. I think she was a widow. I don't know that part. 
But I know as, an, as a very old lady in Shreveport, Louisiana, she decided she didn't know the Bible well enough. She wanted to be able to teach others about the Bible. She relocated for a short term for a few years to Joplin, Missouri to become a full-time student at Ozark Christian College so she could learn the Bible, so she could go back and teach children the Bible. And I always looked at Sylvia Hayhurst, and I thought, I want to be like that. I want to grow up, and I want, I want kids to wonder, why do they want to teach me? What motivates them? And I want to have that kind of passion. And in the church... We need to represent the Christian family. Here, let me let's ask this question. What can we do? There's five things very quickly. Based on our text today, all of the texts included. First of all, pray for our families and future families because we are under attack. When I looked up the, the book I, I own, Gender Roles in, in the Bible, I got a warning that popped up on my computer that... I'm being watched, the kind of things I'm searching for. It's not okay, apparently, to even look for a book called Gender Roles. Two, teach and encourage biblical family principles. Why wouldn't we? We're the family of God. Three, represent, model, and demonstrate. It matters. Whether you like it or not, the kids that come into this building think you're a Christian and think you represent what a Christian woman is or what a Christian man is, what a Christian father is, what a Christian grandfather is, what a Christian mother is, what a Christian grandmother is. That's what they think because they see you here. So represent and model and demonstrate. Four, highlight those who represent, model, and demonstrate. Those who do a good job of showing us what it's supposed to be like, highlight them. And fifth, mentor. This is a hard one. Purposely sacrifice for others. I don't know if you spent much time mentoring, but mentoring requires sacrifice. You have to spend time, energy, and resources if you're going to mentor anyone. It's going to take out of your schedule. It's going to, you might even lose sleep doing it. You cannot mentor well unless you're willing to sacrifice of yourself to do it. But it is desperately needed, people of God. There are too many young people today that don't know how to be a father, to be a mother, basic, rudimentary things are not taught much anymore. It's left to the church, and it should be the church's responsibility to teach about Christian parenting, Christian families, and our distinctive roles in the Bible. Pray with me. God, thank you so much for allowing us to open up your word and speak hard truths to us. Help us to do our part and follow through and please you with our behavior. Forgive us when we fail you, and teach us to improve. In Jesus' name, amen.